Find 2 Corinthians chapter... 2 Corinthians, listen to me. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 as we continue our journey through 1 and 2 Corinthians and obviously beginning tonight in uh, 2 Thessalonians. So chapter 1 and we'll read down through verse 12. So we'll read the chapter in its entirety. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Encouraging the saints. Yes, Jim. I almost forgot. I've forgotten the name of the church now. But on the storms Monday night, uh-huh. uh, a church, Baptist church, in uh, just outside of Lumberton, in Robinson County, was struck by lightning. Okay. And the sanctuary is basically a total loss, and the education building is heavy smoke and water damage. Okay. It struck the steeple during the storm. They covered it on Channel 5 in Raleigh if you want to go to their site and you can probably see pictures and video. You it say it's just an amazing sight. You say it. I forgot my daughter in law had back surgery tomorrow morning. Okay. Janet Mullinax. Janet Mullinax. Sylvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We must always give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith during all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God and is intended to make you worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. For it is indeed just of God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to the afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction separated from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes to be glorified Uh, by His saints, and to be marveled at on that day among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you, asking that our God will make you worthy of His call and will fulfill by His power every good resolve and work of faith, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him, according to the grace of our God, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Obviously, this is Paul's second letter to the same congregation. 
Uh, and what we need to understand, since his last correspondence to them, several things have happened. Paul has heard further about their ongoing persecutions. Uh, I mentioned in studying 1 Thessalonians when we were looking at chapter 1 there that all you have to do is look back to Acts 17 to see how fiercely believers were persecuted at Thessalonica. Thessalonica was a tough place for believers. And so Paul's heard of their ongoing persecutions, and so his concern there in that respect has continued. Uh, then also somebody had deceived them and tried to convince them that the day of the Lord had already happened, and they had missed it somehow. So he's going to address that. And then there was another big problem that's happened since 1 Thessalonians. There was a problem of idleness in the church. People were not living responsibly as they were looking for Christ to return. And so Paul wants them to understand that we are to live responsibly as believers. We're to be responsible in society and we're not to become a burden on others in the church. And so Christians are to have the proper Christian work ethic. So all of these issues he's going to address in this short little book. And he's writing this second letter to clear up uh, some of these issues. Now, chapter 1 mainly consists of his prayer for them. And it's encouragement for them too as they do continue to face opposition. So I want you to see, first of all tonight, his gratitude in prayer. His gratitude in prayer. He says in verse 3, We must always give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, as it's right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. And so there are two things that motivate his prayer for them. What are those two things mentioned here that motivate his prayer for them? Say it again. Their faith and love is growing. Okay. Their faith is growing and their love is growing. And those two things motivate Paul to pray for them even more and to pray with gratitude because they're growing in the Lord and they're growing in their love for one another. You know, 2 Peter 3.18 says that we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. As the one who had introduced the Thessalonians to the Lord Jesus, Paul, he, he's a spiritual father to them. He's delighted to hear that they are indeed advancing in the faith. And we know that this is the special joy of any ministry leader, any pastor, Sunday school teacher, or ministry leader, when you can identify people in the church that you know they're growing. You've seen Christian growth in them. And it's a joy uh, to see this. Talking about students tonight, I'm sure it's a special joy to the brackets, to Charlie and Becky, for example, to see Josh, their grandson, uh, growing in the Lord like he is. 
uh, talking to some of the ministry leaders here and the children and youth, they would have never guessed Josh would turn out the way he was. Uh, they said, man, he was a handful. Uh, I'm sure you'd probably agree with that, wouldn't you? He was a handful. And sometimes they thought, what are we going to do with this kid? <laughs> but now look at it. He's got a rich, deep, growing walk with the Lord, and he loves to preach the gospel. So that's a joy when we see that in people. And folks, growth ought to be natural in the Christian walk for all of us as well, because that's what a relationship is all about, after all. You expect, you expect friendships to grow. Uh, you expect courtship and dating relationships to grow. They grow to the point that finally a couple decides to marry. Growth happens in relationships. Well, we have a relationship with God made possible through His Son, Jesus Christ. A relationship with Christ is to be a growing relationship. Remember, salvation is the beginning of the journey. A lot of people sadly view it as the climax. Hey, I got saved. I can just sit back now and, and sort of relax. Uh, that's not to be our attitude. Uh, we have been set apart. We have been sanctified. Uh, we're set apart for the Lord. God imparts each believer with at least one spiritual gift. He places us within a spiritual family. And we are to grow there. And as we grow, we are also to go. We're to go to others and share the good news of Christ. Growing up together and going out. Uh, God wants us doing that. He wants us representing Him in this world. And you know what? Spiritual babies don't represent Him very well, do they? What a shame the image of childishness that sometimes the world has of certain Christians because that's what they see. God's plan, though, is to grow us, to conform us to the image of Christ. Romans 8, 29, that's God's plan. His Spirit takes His Word and He grows us to conform us more and more each day to His Son, Jesus Christ. And so our lives are to be exhibit A of God's grace and transformation, His power in a person's life. We're to be exhibit A of that. But again, to... to, to to have this happen, Christians have to understand that Christian growth isn't just automatic. It takes purpose. It takes work. Just like physical growth, you've got to eat right. Spiritually, you've got to eat right. You've got to be in God's Word. Uh, not just casually reading it, studying it. You've got to be in prayer. You've got to hang out with other Christians and learn from them. And you know, God will sometimes even use trials and tough times in your life to grow you. Uh, growth is a process. It's not an accident. If you are leaving your Christian growth to accident, chances are it's probably stymied to a big degree. <clears throat> As you read 1 Corinthians, talking about another letter, 1 Corinthians, you see quite readily that Paul was grieved. He was grieved because they weren't growing. They were being childish about a lot of stuff. They were dividing over personalities. They were boasting of their individual gifts. 
they were enjoying sin too much, and all of that was an indication that they were they were children. They hadn't grown up in the Lord like they were supposed to be growing. Paul took them to task over that. It's, it's sad, too, if you get in a church and you might be dealing with a group of people, a Sunday school class, a particular ministry that folks just aren't growing. And, and sometimes you can run into groups in a church that it's almost like they hold everybody else hostage because they're childish and they're so... Fo- Maybe a Sunday school class that's just so focused on itself and so childish. I remember a church one time uh, that I served that... There was a Sunday school class that wasn't growing. In fact, they were quite small. There was another big growing class, and the big, huge class was in a little room and sitting around the wall and hanging from the ceiling, and the little class not growing was in a huge room and had the best of everything, and everybody with any degree of common sense could see that those two classes needed to change. And they were right close to one another. But the little class with a big, big room, it didn't matter to them one bit that their brothers and sisters in Christ a couple doors down from them needed their room. They weren't about to give up their room. That's our room. Childishness. Childishness. Uh, When it's all about me, or it's all about my group. But again, Paul saw the opposite in the Thessalonians. He saw their growth, their growth in Christ, their advancement in kingdom purposes, their advancement in how much they were growing in their love for one another too. Paul saw all of this and it gave him a lot of happiness and joy. Uh, Again, not only did he commend them for their growth, he commended them for their love. Their love for one another was growing. Remember Jesus in John 13 said, That's the thing that the world will look at when they look at a bunch of Christians. The thing the world's going to be looking for is what? How do these Christians treat one another? And that'll be a witness to them. The world bites and devours one another. It ought to be a refreshing thing for an unbeliever to walk into a church. They walk into a church and say, Wow! I can't believe how these folks love one another. How they treat one another. This is great. This is refreshing. That's what an unbeliever should see. Uh, What's it going to look like when we love each other like that? Well, I think 1 Corinthians chapter 13 has something to say there. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says uh, love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. That's what love's going to look like in action. So again, the Christian life is not to be stale and static. We'll be growing. Growing in our faith. Growing in our relationship with Christ. Growing in our relationship to one another. Second thing I want you to see tonight. Encouragement over their fortitude. 
He says in verse 4, Therefore we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith during all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. They were under fire at Thessalonica, and yet in spite of this, they were steadfast. You know, I'm sure glad that we don't face daily persecution in America for our faith. But don't you sense that that might be coming? It kind of feels like it might be coming. And you know what will happen if it does? Church ought to grow. Say what? Say church ought to grow. Yeah. Church ought to grow. Grow deeper. More committed. Right? But you'll also see a falling away of some who just want to be comfortable. Maybe they're in it for the wrong reasons or haven't counted the cost of what being a Christian is really all about. Persecution has never truly hurt the true church. In fact, there are stories behind the, what used to be the Iron Curtain of how the underground church flourished. And some pastors from that region of the world say now that they, they miss some of those days of persecution because of how vibrant the faith and growth in their churches was. And they say now, we're like the church in the West. We're comfortable and we've gotten complacent. And they say they miss some of those former days. Oh, wow, that's, that's a... Powerful testimony, isn't it? Uh, I think in America, if persecution happened, we would probably initially see a huge influx, and then it would immediately drop like crazy. That's what happened after 9-11. Churches were full for two weeks. For two weeks. Uh, should we ever face persecution? We need to pray for one another. We need to pray for fortitude. Fortitude. Look at what he goes on to say. Persecution actually has a separating uh, effect among people. A separating effect is, is what he's talking about there. How, how they have flourished. And he'll go on later on in this chapter, next few verses, to talk about what's going to end in separation of, of people. In fact, verses 7 and following, it's, he's going to talk about God's going to separate the sheep from the goats one day. But essentially, people are already doing that to some degree with their actions. People are showing either way by their fruit if they're with the Lord or not with the Lord. The saints who are suffering for Jesus remaining strong show the genuineness of their faith. Now folks, nobody, certainly nobody who is a complacent or weak believer or maybe even a false believer, they're not, they don't want to put up with suffering. Uh, but the genuine will stay strong. And, that, and, and the genuineness of their faith will be revealed and put on display. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but believers will grow and they will endure uh, 
And so people's actions in and of itself as these things happen will really show where they stand. God may even allow this for a while, for a time. But Paul points out that God is just. And one day, God will do the separating. Let's read these verses, though. I I skipped over without reading. Verse 5, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God and is intended to make you worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. For it is indeed just of God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to the afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who attack Christians, who are they attacking essentially? God. Just like God said to the Apostle Paul when he was still Saul. Saul, why are you persecuting me? That's what the Lord asked Saul. Saul, in persecuting Christians, was persecuting the church. And God is just. God will render uh, vindication. And He is the one to take Vengeance. God knows those who are His and He's able to keep us to the end. Aren't you glad He knows those who are His? Now, Paul points out here that a time is going to come that God is going to separate the sheep from the goats. I want you to notice how verses 9 and 10 describe this as a unified event. These will suffer the punishment, verse 9 says, of eternal destruction separated from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes to be glorified by His saints and to be marveled at on that day among all who have believed. So describing it as a unified event, God will come to be glorified in His people and at the same time will also punish and destroy the wicked who don't know Him. And that's essentially what Jesus says in John 5 also, that a day is coming when everybody's going to come out of their graves and the just are going to be with Him and the unjust are going to suffer eternally. Now, realize this might be a challenge for some of you theologically to think about that it is a unified event that is not separated by years and years and centuries even. That's for another discussion, uh, for another time. But he says there's coming a day, he's coming for his saints to vindicate his saints, to be glorified in us, and in that day, he's likewise going to judge the wicked and assign them to eternal destruction. The sheep will go to their reward, and the goats will go to everlasting destruction. Uh, Hell is described here as both separation from God and separation from His glory, as well as involving suffering. It's both alienation from God and it is also suffering. 
It's not either or, it's both and. But Paul is saying here, God's going to have His say one day. God is just. God's going to vindicate His saints. And what Paul is trying to do here, folks, don't miss what he's trying to do. He's trying to encourage this church. Because this was a church that had suffered at the hands of their enemies deeply. And yet they've grown, they've endured, they've got fortitude, and they've continued to bear fruit. And they have shown by their actions how genuine their faith is and how much they are legitimately changed. They're a different sort of people now than they were before meeting Christ. And Paul is commending them for that, and he's basically saying to them, keep on keeping on, because God one day will deal with the wicked who are troubling you. You know, some people ask, why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? If, if God was real, if He's really there, He would deal with this. Well, the Bible says He's, good. He's going to deal with it one day. And the reason He hasn't yet, Scripture says, is He's patient and long-suffering. And he's giving wicked time to repent and believe. But folks, evil and wickedness in the world is not going to go on and on forever. God's not going to allow it. God is going to come and deal with it. And he is the one with perfect knowledge and ability to settle accounts because he knows every heart. And so the vengeance that he takes will be what needs to be done. If you and I take vengeance against our enemies, guess what? We'll end up getting it wrong, right? We'll mess it up. God knows. And God's going to come one day and deal with the wicked and judge them appropriately in the day that he comes to be glorified among his saints. So Paul's encouraging them so that they won't, they've been so faithful in carrying on, he doesn't want them to get discouraged by continuing wickedness that they're experiencing. They, they grow weary of that and don't continue to endure. He wants them to endure and assures them God will take care of of judgment one day. Uh, and God's timing is perfect too. One of these days a separation will be done and God will get it perfect. But for now, things are playing out. Uh, on a side note, related to this topic though, let me say that there were two churches in the New Testament that Paul really boasted about. He boasted about them for different reasons. The church at Thessalonica was one of the churches Paul really boasted about because of how steadfastly they stood up to wickedness in their context and had continued to grow. The other church that Paul and his ministry really boasted about was the Philippian church because of the way they had shared in his ministry and been a partner together with him 
and supplied many of his needs. Uh, but again, this church he really commended for the way they were holding up against all the evil and wickedness in the world. So, folks, don't worry about it that God, God is somehow or another not going to take care of all the bad stuff we see going on in our world. He is going to take care of it. He is going to take care of the evil and the suffering. And He's going to come one day with perfect vengeance and settle accounts. And everything will be done perfectly because He's a perfect and sovereign God. So again, He's encouraging them in this. And then thirdly, I want you to say prayer for their daily walk. Prayer for their daily walk. He says in verse 11, To this end we always pray for you, asking that our God will make you worthy of His call and will fulfill by His power every good resolve and work of faith so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't worry about judgment. God will get it right. Uh, but I think his prayer in these last two verses reveal his true concern for them. Because if you're writing to people who are being hounded to death, what's your main concern for them? Safety. Their safety. And mentally that they would grow discouraged, right? Circumstances aren't supposed to knock us off course, but sometimes circumstances do. So no matter how tough it got for them at Thessalonica, Paul just wanted to hear of their progress in the faith. It's like Paul is saying to them, you're focusing on what the ungodly are doing to you, but I don't worry about that because God's going to recompense them. Don't ever doubt that. What I worry about is that somehow or another you might let the ungodly knock you out of your race, knock you off course. That they would overly discourage you and you would just say, Christianity's too tough. It's too tough to be faithful to Christ in this type of world. It's not worth it. Paul, that's what Paul is worried about with them. The power of discouragement. You know, encouragement is powerful, but discouragement is powerful too, isn't it? <laughs> you can see this at church sometimes. Somebody, maybe you know of somebody in perhaps a church growing up that you had a or somebody got overly discouraged and the next thing you heard, they had just fallen off the map given up their class maybe, didn't even attend anymore. They just, people try to reach out to them and they were just done. They got so discouraged, they just kind of walked away. Maybe you know of somebody like that. That's Paul's concern with him. If they were to respond that way, it would be nearsighted. Uh, and folks, we need to realize that this side of heaven, the Christian life, is never going to be easy. It's never going to be easy. Life in a fallen world is filled with tribulation and trials. 
And we have an enemy. And the Bible says he's like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Christian life is never going to be maybe as easy as some people would like it to be. Thank the Lord that it's not always as difficult as some people imagine it to be. But it's never going to be as easy as some people want it to be. God doesn't have us in a bubble. God has us here in a fallen, dark, lost, evil world. He's left us here after salvation because He's got a mission and a ministry for us. If He didn't, I'm sure He would have probably just taken us on to glory as soon as we got saved. He's left us here for a purpose. It's not going to always be easy. So again, I think some people just need to, need to get that in their minds because the least little thing happens to them in their Christian walk and they give up so easily. They grow discouraged so easily. Or they just quit and say, I'll take all my toys and go home. Right? We need to remember what they did to Jesus. And Jesus told His disciples, the servant is not greater than the Master. Remember what the writer of Hebrews also said in Hebrews chapter 12 when he's telling them to run their race and stay in their race. He says, you've not yet suffered to the point like Jesus did of shedding blood, have you? Of course you've not. But he did continue to the point of shedding blood and even laying down his life. But the writer of Hebrews says, you've not gotten to that point yet. So hang in there and stay in your race. Run your race. Don't let a wicked world uh, or even disobedient Christians persuade you away from the hope that you have in the Gospel. You're to walk worthy of the calling that you have from the Lord. And as you look around, if nobody else is joining you in walking worthy, guess what? You're to walk worthy anyway. Hopefully others will join in, but even if they don't, you stay in your race and you walk worthy of your calling even if nobody's walking with you. Sometimes Christians have to stand alone. You remember the story in the early church of Athanasius? Does anybody remember that story about Athanasius? Who tenaciously fought for a proper understanding of the Trinity. And the, the orthodox position. And he was told at one point, Athanasius, don't you understand the entire world is against you? And you know what his response was? Well, Athanasius is against the whole world. <laughs> he wasn't knocked off course. And finally, guess what? The church came around and said, you know what? He was right. And in one of their confessions, basically put in print many of the things he had fought for. He stood alone. <clears throat> Paul re 
reminds them that they are being purified through their afflictions. And in this whole process, God is not absent from them. God is present with them. He is at work in them and through them. He is using their afflictions and He is equipping them. And so He says, you need to focus in on that. And that's what I'm praying for you about. You'll focus in on that. Not that you'll focus in on what you're receiving from the hands of the world. God will take care of that. You focus in on your faithfulness. <clears throat> Some lessons here. <clears throat> he wants them to keep growing. He wants them to keep loving. He assures them that God will vindicate His people one day. Leave the final judgment to God. And then the last lesson I've given you here, don't let discouragement win the day. Keep growing, keep loving. God will vindicate His people one day. Leave the final judgment to God. Don't let discouragement win the day. You know, I, I hadn't, hadn't planned it this way, hadn't even thought of it till just now, to be honest with you. But you know, when you think of Christian teachers and administrators and students who we prayed for tonight, some of them might be fixing to start a new year thinking, what's the use? What's the use? I just feel like I'm spitting into the wind trying to be a godly teacher or a godly student in this kind of environment. What's the use? I'll just give up and give in and go on with what everybody's doing. I think this chapter would speak volumes to that person. It says, no, you hang in the fight. You concentrate on your faithfulness. You keeping your eyes on Jesus. You be a good witness. And the wickedness, if they don't turn to Christ, God will deal with them one day. God will deal with them one day. And His judgment is just. It's perfect. You keep your focus and your eyes where they're supposed to be as a Christian student or a Christian teacher or administrator. And even if you don't have a lot of support in your school, the Lord is with you. He stands with you. And so, I think to anybody in here, I'm not sure how many, I know we have one, I don't know if we have others in the school system. I know Gene's in and out of there working with a lot of administrators and teachers, but I think that would be a powerful word to somebody in the school system. What he's saying to the Thessalonians right 